The digital age means a digital life. The more you live your life online, the more of your life and your money, your reputation is on the line. We're all vulnerable to cybercrime, but probably not in the way you're imagining right now. Join me and my two expert guests to debate the topic, debunk the myths and misinformation, and deal with the reality of cybersecurity with reason, with insight, and without the fear factor that often clouds the media. I'm Lyndon Sabroyan, the Global Head of Investec Digital and Technology, and today I'm joined in conversation with two experts in this field. Hi guys, thank you both for joining me. We're joined by Misha Glenny. He's an award-winning British journalist, broadcaster, and a specialist in global organized crime and cybersecurity. And his book, The Dark Market, delves into the ever-shifting tactics a new breed of hackers use in phishing and other cybercrime. We're also joined by Dominic White. Dominic is the CEO of SensePost. He's also the Chief Technology Officer of SensePost. They're an information security consultancy. He's actively involved in the South African research community and has published work at various prestigious international security conferences. Guys, welcome. Nice to be here. Thank you. You know, there, there are so many common challenges that our clients face, resulting in them becoming victims of digital crime. And I wonder constantly if I'm doing enough um, to keep myself and my family safe at night. The reason for my concern is because of all the media coverage we see, um, often quite scary, what's happening in the underworld. Misha, if we could go to you first. You know, you're, you've spent quite a lot of time researching this space, got into the minds of the cyber criminal. What's keeping you awake at night? Well, Lyndon, I like to look at things uh, holistically because obviously so much has changed over the past six months. And over the past five to 10 years, what we've seen is a coming together of traditional organized crime groups like the mafia with cyber criminal groups. So essentially, traditional organized crime groups have augmented their capability by moving into cyber and collaborating with people who hitherto were only engaged in online activity. Now, this is important because of what happened when COVID struck, because it became more difficult to engage in traditional organized crime activities like uh, drug smuggling or people trafficking because borders went down. And so what you saw was, first of all, an immediate drop in traditional criminal activities, but very quickly, you saw an increase in uh, cybercrime and uh, online malfeasance of one type or another. And, and of course, this then was accentuated by the massive shift to home working. When you've got kids and other members of the family around, that's actually uh, hugely increasing the, the so-called attack surface. Um, because criminals can get into your computer through um, those uh, family members or, or friends who are perhaps not quite so engaged in, in security issues. And what should we be worried about? Uh, Misha's painted a, a picture of uh, a pretty well-organized um, set of, of um, industries. What should we be worried about here? So I'm going to take a slightly different tack to Misha in that I think the point is to get to a position where you don't have to worry. Uh, I think so much of security uh, ends up just sort of terrifying people without necessarily arming them. I think it's possible to to theorize about attackers' capabilities, understand this is how attackers work, understand this is their current MOs, uh, and then then you can kind of be responsive to it. So I think it's possible to, outside of the you know, the technical sophistry that might be used by attackers to actually come up with a 
what we would call a threat model on how to protect yourself so that you, you can be comfortable at night. Can I add on to what Dominic was saying there, Linda, because he's, he's made a very important point. The great majority of attacks that individuals and indeed companies are likely to suffer, you can easily protect yourself against that with just the simple rules of keeping your antivirus program and other digital security programs up to date. And remember that whilst it appears to be an intimidating subject, computer security, about 85% of attacks are still a consequence of social engineering. That is some bad guy trying to persuade you to do something on your computer, which is actually not to your advantage. Now, social engineering is not about sophisticated digital technology. It's about psychology. And much of cybersecurity is about human beings. One of the most common and lucrative attacks at the moment is called business email compromise or CEO fraud. When you receive an apparent invoice from somebody who actually may be a real person who you've dealt with, and they're asking for some transfer of funds to their uh, account. This has been surprisingly successful. People are very gullible about sending off the money when they receive this invoice. So you've got to read not only the email very carefully, the language that it's couched in, or whether it's the same type of familiarity that you usually have with that person. It's just about normal behavior of being an aware human being. Listening to both of you, it often, as you've pointed out, Misha, can sound quite scary. There's lots of jargon. People see, you know, in the media, large data breaches like the recent Experian one, um, and they think that it's quite far away, which often results in them being pretty, you know, nonchalant about their, A, their digital identity, and B, the basic tasks they fulfill on their, their own computers, like you've mentioned, um, you know, just the simple act of reading an email and making a payment. How do these breaches really play out in the media? And why should, why should clients, consumers, the man on the street, um, pay attention to it? So uh, I think you know, distance, distance is a tough thing to measure online. Uh, if it's, if it's your information, then no, it's not, not far away. But it's, it's, I guess it's as far away as the attacker that uses it. In a large breach, you're, you're one in millions. It's not clear that an attacker is going to use your information. And, and I also think that our, the reporting around breaches doesn't take into account what the actual consequence to you as an individual might be. For example, you mentioned the Experian South Africa breach. That's credit bureau data that's widely available to anyone who has a couple of rands to rub together to do a credit search on you. So it's not new information that's out there. It's really just the cost of that information that has been reduced. And so the, the kinds of attacks people could use uh, that data for, uh, for example, impersonating you to uh, a call center to try and gain access to some of your services. But maybe that's the, the kind of attack they could use it. So trying to understand what, what is the breach? Is this something new and how does it expose me, I think is the missing middle uh, in a lot of that reporting. And I think it does itself a disservice because then individuals don't see a consequence and they go, well, it doesn't matter, which is a dangerous side to leave, leave people at. And um, so there isn't too much understanding of that. The, the other side of it is we know about the breaches once a consequence has happened. Criminals and crime by its very nature is supposed to be hidden. A criminal wouldn't be a very good criminal if everyone saw what they were doing all the time. 
So we see and we know about the crime once the money's been transferred, once the uh, breach has gone public or the organizations have gone public with it. What we miss out on so often is how did they get in and what did they do up until the point that we now got the, the public reporting? A lot of the time it's opportunistic. Uh, it's low margin, high volume stuff. And so you can put defenses in place that make you uh, less interesting to them. That's absolutely right, Dominic. And you know, when I was talking earlier about traditional organized crime fusing together with cyber criminal groups, well, one of the things that cyber criminal groups learned from traditional organized crime was how to organize themselves better. You can never be 100% sure who it is that is attacking you and what the motivation is. You can be fairly confident that most of the time the motivation is to, is to extract money from you, but that's not always the case. And that sometimes make it, uh, makes it difficult trying to track down who is actually behind, uh, behind the breach. Misha, Dom, fascinating what you've just described here. Dom, you used the word, this is a business. Misha, what you described is an entirely industrialized industry here. I have two questions for you. Firstly, to pick up on, on this industrialization of it, who are these guys targeting and why? Um, that's the first one. And then I want to, I want to understand from both of you, um, as, as experts in this field, what are you doing to protect your online identity in, in light of this? Most attacks are opportunistic attacks where criminals will just throw out some malware or throw out a phishing email into the ether and see what it picks up. Their victims can be individuals, they can be small, medium or large uh, enterprises, but as I say, entirely opportunistic, relatively low rent, and on the whole, you can protect yourself against that sort of stuff. So it's important to stress that particularly against these opportunistic uh, attacks. There are all sorts of things you can do and you should be safe. Now, there's a different type of attack, which is a targeted attack. And that is much, much more difficult to ward off because a targeted attack will look at a company, a corporation or an individual and say, right, we want to get into that person's network. And so before they even go anywhere near the network, they will start researching. And their usual um, sort of base research is open source intelligence. That means Googling. Above all else, it means using social media. So for example, one of the things that uh, often happens is, is that uh, a criminal group will go through everyone's social media in a particular department, and they will build up a psychological profile of the people in that department and craft a social engineering phishing attack according to those people's apparent vulnerabilities. Now, when this sort of thing is happening to you, it's much more difficult to ward it off. And this is where you need really professional people in information security who are working together with the finance department, with comms, with risk management, and with the board. Misha, I mean, the, those, um, what you've described there, I can understand how many, many of our clients who are watching this, um, will be sitting back thinking, okay, I'm, I'm sure, um, those who run these systems for us, the corporates we, we, we're employed in, um, the cybersecurity experts we have are, are doing enough. When, when it comes to physical security, of course, we, we do pretty obvious things. 
But when it comes to cybersecurity, we tend to be fixated on the spider under my table, but we leave the front door wide open. So there's something to do with computers, which is known as the social disinhibition effect, which means that whereas when you walk down the street, you wouldn't stop a stranger and start telling them everything about how much you drink, what your sex life is like, and what your address is and your various phone numbers. When you get on a computer, you appear to be perfectly uh, content to do this. And this is the social disinhibition effect, is, is that we have this impression that our relationship with our computer is an intimate one. It's just us and the screen and the guts of the computer and then the wider internet. And what we have to remember all the time is, is that essentially we are being watched. We're being watched through our data. We may be being watched through spyware and so on and so forth. And that we have multiple vulnerabilities. All of us have data which we really would prefer not to be shared. You have to think of what is it that I do not want let out into the world. And that is the stuff that you have to protect. And when you're writing an email, never write anything in an email that you wouldn't mind uh, seeing on the front page of a ma major tabloid newspaper the following day. So, good tip. Dom, what about from you? What's, what, what, what do you do and, and what advice could you give us? In the physical world, we understand what to do. And, and that's because we understand how people are likely to attack us in the physical world. So I have a tall wall because I'm worried that somebody's going to jump over that wall to gain entrance. I have a camera outside so that I can examine who somebody is before I let them into their property because I don't want to let in a bad person. In the cyber world, people haven't necessarily developed the same uh, ability to think rationally about what their threats are. So the first thing is, who are you and what are you worried about? Those inform your threat model and the likely people that are going to come after you. The second part is what would they be coming after you for? Because that determines what they're going to go after. If you have a safe in your house full of gold and somebody knows it, that's what they're breaking in to get. They're not coming in to look through your family's photo album. But a lot of the time in cybersecurity, that's what we're worried about. God forbid somebody breaks into Facebook and looks at my family photo album. It's like, no, they're trying to monetize this somehow a lot of the time. And there's absolutely this difference between the targeted attack and the, the opportunistic attack. But on the opportunistic side, the majority of the time, they're trying to monetize what they're doing. So they're going after your banking details. They're trying to send you a, f a fake email with the wrong banking details in so that money is transferred. That's, as Misha said right in the beginning, by far the most common approach that you're, you're going to see. So understanding that they're trying to monetize it can help you defend what you're doing. Anything that involves financial transactions or financial gain, you need to be a lot more, a lot more wary of. Uh, and then just to be slightly controversial, the, the gap between Windows and Mac malware is closing significantly. Mobile devices, a lot of the time, are a lot more secure than your laptops. So laptops are general computing devices, which means they're made to run anything. That includes generic malware. Your mobile devices are quite limited. Every application you run runs in a sandbox, which is not allowed to access the data of other applications. Uh, and unfortunately, there's a little bit of an economic thing here. So high-end devices, be they high-end Apple mobile devices or high-end Google Apple devices, have better security than low-end devices. Uh, and in that case, a lot of the time, high-end Apple devices are, uh, for, for the average use case, more secure. Thanks, guys. That's a really great insight. And very remiss of me not to mention that we are, we are in 2020. The most cliched phrase of the year, I think, is that we find ourselves in unprecedented times. And in these times, we're spending more and more time online. We're all trying to understand how to, how to ensure the content we're consuming 
um, is authentic. It's real. We're seeing loads of coverage about fake news and fake media being generated. We've got new additions into our lives now with COVID tracing apps. Some people are really paranoid about being followed around. Others are pretty nonchalant about it. What, what else are you guys seeing during this time that we should be aware of? Well, it's gotten to the point where anytime somebody forwards me a news item over WhatsApp, I just automatically assume it's rubbish. I think there's a massive amount of misinformation out there at the moment, particularly when it comes to, to cyber and security things. For example, COVID tracing apps, the Google Apple exposure notification framework is incredibly well thought through. And it's, uh, there's no personal information about you collected through the app. There's this massive misinformation that now the government has access to new private data that they didn't have beforehand. Uh, so I think the, you know, the amount of time it takes to come up with the misinformation versus the amount of time it takes to, to defend against it is, is asymmetric. It takes a lot longer to correct people's perceptions than to, to make it. So that's certainly a, a trend we're seeing, but I think it relates back to what we're saying where a lot of the time people are worried about the spider in the room rather than the open door, you know, the COVID tracing app. If you're worried about your safety and security, it's probably more useful to know when you've been exposed to somebody who now has been tested positive than the government building up a secret database about you, which truthfully, they've already got access to your movement data from the telecoms <laughs> networks anyway. <laughs> yes, let me, let me pick up on that. Dom's actually, Dominic's absolutely right on that. This is, they probably know all this stuff anyway. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't be too exercised about it when it comes to saving your life through COVID. So we've already got a lot of really useful empirical evidence because some countries cope with this pandemic extremely well. Some countries have coped with it extremely badly. So we have learned a lot about how populations interact with crises during this. And we know a lot more about who does it well and who does it badly. I want to pick up on, on what both of you, um, as you exchanged with each other on, on this topic, you, you said they've got this information anyway. What information or data is publicly available and, and why is it available? There's public availability and there's, there's secret availability, as it were, um, and they're two very different things. So, But also you have the question of data and your data being sold, Google, Facebook, Twitter, and so on and so forth. This is a massive subject which is going to be ever more intensely debated in the years to come. And we are now seeing big legislation coming on the horizon, certainly here in the European Union, but we're also seeing in the United States. So there's, there's data on that level in terms of, you know, controlling people's or influencing people's desires and shopping and whatever it is they want to do. And then, of course, there are the intelligence services and governments and what, what the data that they have on you, which will be, of a, will be of a different nature. But we do know that it's extremely extensive, really, ever since uh, Snowden. You can be confident that a lot of your data is captured and stored, even the encrypted material, because at some point that encrypted material with the development of quantum decryption will be able to be unlocked by whoever holds it. Just importantly, Misha, because of the misinformation that's been going around, particularly in South Africa, the COVID app is not giving the government information they already have. The COVID app is not giving the government information. It's, it's a very well designed. Dom, let's, let's pick up on 
the amount of data being collected. Um, Misha, you've touched on the role that big tech is playing in the collection of this data, um, how it's being stored, how it could be used. We, we, we have had questions from a few clients asking us about scrubbing their data uh, and the term being used uh, to describe the deletion of their data. What could they do to make sure that their, their online footprint is cleaned? What's your take on this? And is this a service or a, a capability that we should be making more use of? The, to use social networks, you don't need to give them as much information as they want you to give them. Uh, it's completely possible that you can use Facebook without putting a profile picture up, without giving your birthday, and without specifically highlighting who your family members are. However, they make it deliberately difficult to, to make your information transient. Uh, so, for example, one of the practices I do is that all of my Facebook posts over a week old, I change the um, privacy settings on to only me. Unfortunately, I had to write code to do that because that's not a capability that Facebook would like you to, to have because it's not going to be a particularly usable place then. And I think sometimes people don't appreciate how much inference can be made based on the information you've put out there. Um, for example, I was demonstrating the other day that you can do a credit bureau lookup for somebody's uh, address, phone number, loans that they have, properties that they own, all sorts of things. But to do that, you need to know their initials and their birthday. Well, if you put your birthday on Facebook and you've got a public profile, it's very easy to do. However, if you don't and you have pictures of your birthday that are public, then you can infer when someone's birthday is. That's a very simplistic example, but I think there's a lot of information that can be inferred about you based on your use of, of online tools. Yes, that's been really good insight. So we've understood from both of you the, the industrialization of, of cybercrime, but I want to get some practical takeaways from both of you now. You know, we often read that it is not a case of if you are hacked, but when. So give me your view for our clients. What should they do if they're hacked? So that question is typically asked for what should we do once we found out we have been hacked? And there's some, some subtlety there because the first prize is if you find out you've been hacked before the consequences has occurred. So the earlier you can, you can spot this and figure it out, the more options options you have. The difficulty a lot of the time is that if somebody has finished the hack, then it's really about cleaning up from, from your side. If there have been things like identity numbers have been exposed or used in different ways, you now need to start speaking to the government or provider about potentially changing those or, or getting things off, which is not an easy process. And then you want to make sure that your, your technical equipment uh, is clean. That requires knowing what they did, and most of the time we can't. So a lot of the time it's just, just rebuild everything from, from scratch. If you left a criminal in your house for a month, uh, just because they've left doesn't mean that they haven't left a whole bunch of things behind. And uh, unlike the physical world, you're not going to bulldoze, bulldoze your house, but uh, in the technical world you can. For businesses, when they compromise, it's very difficult because it's very once somebody has technical access to your network, it's quite difficult to evict them. So they typically don't have one VPN account and one link. So there's multiple links into the organization. There's multiple persistence methods to make sure if something is found and disabled that they can get back in. So a lot of the time in the case of ransomware attacks or these ransomware style attacks where somebody says, I've got all of this information about you, pay us and we won't release it publicly. So they didn't use ransomware malware. They've just effectively ransoming the, the access that they have. You almost have to turn the entire network off and then methodically evict them from all of the systems and, um, and places they might be, which is 
is very uncomfortable and can put your um, your business at risk, and the productivity at significantly at risk. Listening to you, it sounds like we should certainly try to focus on on prevention uh, quite a lot more. Um, Misha, from from your perspective, what 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 are some of the the key points you'd like to to share around how how to just shift your mind around this? So I have four basic rules. Much of it is to do with the issue that I think is a, a real vulnerability to the cybersecurity industry, which is communication. So digital security has to be company-wide. Every employee has to understand the role that they play in that digital security regime. Secondly, the leadership of a company must understand, they have to have a comprehensive grasp of the key digital assets and how they're protected. Thirdly, key personnel need to be kept aware of the current and future threats, not just, incidentally, digital threats. And finally, and this is really important, is you've got to have protocols in place in the event that you have uh, a breach and you've got to have a robust strategy responding resilience. On a personal level, I would say one of the most important things is not to panic. So before you do, before you go down drastic measures, stop. And we all know people who know more about computers than we do and who we trust. Ask them first and be systematic about it. And don't go down the road of giving access to your computer to people who really, really shouldn't have that access. Let's continue this conversation around um, your social media profiles, the use of social networks, a documentary that's got wide ranging reviews, uh, people loving it, some people very skeptical about it. And of course, I'm talking about the social dilemma, the new Netflix documentary. Um, I'd like to get your view on it, Misha. What's interesting about the social dilemma is, is that almost all the interviewees in the program, which is highly critical of the strategies of uh, Facebook, Twitter, Google, etc., they were almost all previous very senior employees of these companies involved uh, oftentimes in the creation of some of the algorithms which are encouraging people to uh, use social media or in their business strategies and so on. They were all without exception, highly damning about what social media companies are up to, i.e. trying to get you addicted to their, to their product so that they can sell your data to advertisers. So we're no longer thinking deeply. We're surfing hundreds and hundreds of topics, but not really understanding what's behind them. And what I thought was most striking about the social dilemma was the number of former executives and engineers who deny access to their children of social media and screens in general, that they have seen what it has done to people's brains and they don't like it. Watched it. What's your view? I've been a, a privacy wonk, an online privacy wonk for, for many years and, and mostly people have either laughed or it laughed at me or ignored me <laughs> or ignored us. There's a few of us about it. So it's, it's a little frustrating to see 
what looks like people trying to whitewash some of their reputations. I think there were people pointing out the problems with, with some of this at the time that they were engaging in it. They were, the information was available for them to come to the conclusions they have now come to. But I think structurally, it points to a problem in our society that's wider than just social media. I mentioned earlier this idea of credit bureaus. Uh, you can't interact with a bank for a banking product, even with strong privacy laws, without your data being sent to, to a credit bureau. In South Africa, there are specific legislative loopholes allowed for credit bureaus um, to collect and maintain data uh, in different ways. And we've now seen what those breaches look like. In South Africa, we've had the uh, Master Deeds and Experian one, but internationally, the, the US Experian one shows that maybe collecting all of this data in one place isn't, isn't wonderful. I think the rest of us are just passengers in this whole thing. In the meantime, uh, personally, what you can do for your kids and yourself is to be aware of the dopamine hits and how they do it. I've gone off many social networks because they don't actually, you know, on a, on a sober reflection, they don't actually add a lot of value. You know, if I do need to go onto Facebook, I have to log onto the website on my phone, which is an, makes it much less comfortable to use. There's some friction between me and the, the endless scrolling. And so I think there are ways of, of making your, the time you spend more deliberate, but we're now sort of venturing outside of security and privacy into, into other waters. Let's hope, if anything, um, the social dilemma has done one thing, which has got people to realize that if the product is free, you are the product. So be careful how you use it, what you do with it. What are some of the tips you can leave us with? What are your top three um, security tips that you'd like to share with our clients? So I think that the first and most important one is understand what your likely threats are. Who's interested in going after you? Who has the means or motive to, to do it with? from a cyber perspective, and then track the paths from them to what they would be going after and think how you can put defenses in place. So I think it's, it's okay to cultivate a sense of skepticism, particularly if it's related to what you're trying to protect and who might be coming after you, uh, because it will encourage you to ask the questions and to go find the information. And then that relates to the third point, which is be informed, which is an easy thing to say. But what I mean by that is the information is out there. You can find out this information, particularly if you have something that you're trying to protect in mind and you've, you're skeptical of certain behavior that you're seeing, uh, connecting those dots and trying to find ways of protecting yourself then is actually a lot more doable. Uh, it's just now you're not dealing with unknown magicians who could come at you in any different uh, multitude of ways. You're dealing with a specific set of people going after you for a specific set of thing in what is now becoming apparent to you a specific set of ways. And then you can find ways of defending yourselves. So those would be my, my three tips. Build a threat model, be skeptical, be informed. Say number one, don't panic because actually you can protect yourself against the great majority of threats out there. Secondly, I, I would insist, I would stress things like password managers and for important accounts, two-factor authentication. And then thirdly, always read your correspondence uh, whether it's through websites or whether it's through email, always read it carefully and be confident that what you're reading is actually the type of document that you would receive from the person who is purporting to send it. Thank you to you both. Um, certainly for me now, um, it's clear for every lock. There's someone out there trying to pick it or break it. And as the world is increasingly connected, I think we all now understand that we 
we share the responsibility of cyberspace um, to be safe and keep each other secure. Thank you for joining us um, in conversation here at Investec. Views expressed are those of the contributors at the time of publication and do not necessarily represent the views of the firm and should not be taken as advice or recommendation. Investec Specialist Bank, a division of Investec Bank Limited, is a registered credit provider.